because I need and want to be more prayerful than I have been lately, and because much of what evangelical Christians call prayer today bears too little resemblance to what the Bible calls prayer. And if we at CBC are going to enter into and experience everything that God has for us and wants for us, prayer is going to be absolutely key. For those reasons, we're taking a couple Sundays to re-enroll in the school of prayer. Last week, we looked at the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, and we were practicing that this morning. We saw that Jesus taught us to let the knowledge of God loom large in our prayers. First, we focus on who we're praying to, our Father in heaven. Then we pray about, uh, or we pray for our Father's concerns, for God's reputation, for God's kingdom, for God's will. And only then are we in a space to pray well about our concerns. I think part of my concern about the way that we often pray today is that we so quickly jump to all of our concerns that we have little awareness of the God that we're praying to or what he wants for himself or what he wants for us. Sometimes it helps me to visually picture what I'm talking about. And the picture in my mind is, is this one here. Too often, our focus on our concerns is large and our focus on God is so small. But what the Bible insists is that the second picture is a better one here, that God fills our vision and our concerns are in perspective. They're not insignificant, but they're in their proper perspective in view of our vastly great God. And I'd like to submit to you that the first work of prayer is to expand our view of God so that our needs are brought into perspective. Because until we have an accurate view of God, His power, His greatness, His loving concern, and His will for us and, and for this world, we can't pray with faith. Now, this isn't easy work to expand our view of God. It involves wrestling. You remember the story of Jacob when he wrestled with God? He was headed back to the promised land. He, he burned his bridges behind him in Aram where he'd been in exile. And now as he comes back to the promised land, Esau, his brother, is coming out to meet him with 400 men. And Jacob had cheated Esau in the past and given Esau every reason to be mad at Jacob. So Jacob is confronted head on with the brokenness of his life. And in this place, his needs are looming large, his needs for safety and protection, a place to live and to belong, and his need for peace with his family and in his relationships. And so Jacob wrestles there at that place with God. He pleads with God to bless him and, and to give him a good future. And what happens if you know this story? Jacob winds up limping away from this prayer, a weak and humbled man. But Jacob also limped away a blessed man because God answered his prayer. I think the lesson there about prayer for us is that some of us give up far too soon in our praying. The work of prayer involves wrestling with our big needs and, and coming to grips with how much bigger God and God's will are. Until we reach a place of faith where our trust is in our far greater God. The other story about wrestling in prayer that comes to mind is the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion. 
He agonizes in prayer about his needs. He knows he's about to experience a brutal, excruciating death and, and hell itself. And so Jesus prays, God, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Three times Jesus prays this, and his prayer is so agonizing that he sweats what are like great drops of blood. Yet by the end, he, he, he gets himself to the place he needs to be, and he's able to, to pray, not my will, Father, but your will be done. His needs become less. God becomes far greater, and, and he gets up and he goes forward with resolute courage and strength. In the first story, Jacob got what he prayed for. And in the second story, Jesus did not get what he prayed for, but instead he got the grace and the strength to accept that God's answer was no. Either is a possible outcome when we pray. Well, I don't know about you, but these stories ring true to my experience of prayer. When I get done rattling off my, my prayer list to God, my prayer has barely begun. But as I continue to pray, if I continue, I begin to wrestle through who I'm really praying to, what God is like, and, and what God really wants for me. And as God becomes greater in my view, I begin to take my hands off and, and to let God be God. Until I get to the point of faith and I say, not my will, but, but yours be done. And, and I don't say it with casual resignation, but with heartfelt trust. For you are good. For you are good. For you are good to me. Do some of you know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced this in prayer? Maybe not as often as you'd like, but you, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the psalmists teach us a lot about this. I mentioned last week that in addition to the Lord's Prayer, God has graciously given us in His Word 150 prayers, 150 psalms to teach us how to pray. I gave you the analogy last week of the movie The Karate Kid, Wax On, Wax Off, about how when we practice new skills, be they karate or in sports or in music or in art or, or in prayer, it can seem, as we practice, hard and mechanical and, and boring at first, but our practice develops certain habits, which eventually enable us to function naturally and expertly in the thing that we've been practicing. You know, if you look at the many prayers in the Bible, if you look at Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish or Mary and Zachariah's prayers before the birth of Christ or uh, Jesus' prayers from the cross or the prayers of the early church in the first part of Acts, these prayers are like pastiches of little quotes and allusions from the Psalms. God's people have always learned to pray by practicing by praying the Psalms. I don't know how recent generations have lost sight of this fact somehow. Well, I'd like to look at one such psalm this morning, Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is a good example of the most common type of psalm. You know, there are at least seven different types of psalms in the Bible, and yet a full 40% of all the psalms are just one type. Not praise psalms, but what are called lament psalms. Much, uh, actually twice, uh, there are twice as many lament psalms in the Bible as there are praise psalms. So I guess there's 40% lament and 20% praise and the other 
40% or something else, one of the other five types. Much of biblical prayer is sung in a minor key. Lament psalms are raw, emotional prayers. They're sometimes questioning, sometimes complaining, sometimes sorrowful, sometimes angry. I like to call them the blues tunes of the Bible. Before we look at Psalm 13 in particular, let me say a few things about lament psalms in general. You might find this helpful to, as you try to pray the lament psalms in the future. First of all, lament psalms are not spontaneous off-the-cuff prayers. Rather, they are carefully crafted according to a standard stylized form. Just like haiku poetry has its five lines and then seven lines and then five lines, or English sonnets have their iambic pentameter and fixed structure, lament psalms have a standard, certain standard elements. I, I've actually put them on the back of your yellow service sheet. These elements can occur in various orders, and, and sometimes one or more might be missing, but in general, lament psalms contain first an address to God, often simply, O Lord. Then a complaint expressing the psalmist's negative feelings and circumstances. Then there's a confession of trust, that the psalmist trusts God despite the troubles and looks to God for deliverance. Then there's a petition or a request asking God to intervene and change things. Sometimes then there are words of assurance. These are spoken by God. Sometimes they're in the psalm. Sometimes they're, they're not. They're just assumed. We'll come back to that later. And then finally, a vow of praise, or a vow to praise God, to give God thanks when he answers or because he's already answered. So those are the elements you'll find, some or all of them in various orders in the Lament Psalm. And as you can see, the Lament Psalms move from pain and struggle to faith and trust to joyful hope and praise. Some of them get further than others, but they're all moving in that direction. A second quality worth knowing about lament psalms is that they use stock phrases to convey ideas. Phrases like, my enemies are rising up against me. And I've fallen into a pit. And my foot has slipped. And God is my rock. You can be sure that the psalmists weren't all prone to falling into pits. Or, or that the psalmist's sandals weren't always particularly slippery. But rather, these were stock metaphors which were part of the genre. And, and the, the poets, these psalmists, used these metaphors to express their own unique circumstances to God in prayer. And this is actually good news for us as we pray the psalms because we might not be able to relate to the specific circumstances of the psalmists like David running from Mad King Saul or, or hiding in a cave. Yet because the psalmists use generic symbols to convey their struggles, we can more easily adopt their prayers as our own. Because, after all, we all have our figurative pits that we fall into, don't we? We have our figurative battles that we fight. We have our figurative stumbles and slips along the way, right? So we can relate to this language. Third quality of the Lament Psalms, and of all the Psalms in general, and that is, for the most part, they're the prayers of the kings of Israel. And especially of David, the exemplary king of Israel. Yet the New Testament has taught us to see the Psalms also as the prayers of the son of David. The ultimate king of Israel. 
and God's people. The Psalms are, in a sense, ultimately the prayers that King Jesus prayed and the prayers that others prayed about Jesus. And because we are followers of this king, we can enter into and pray the Psalms right alongside Jesus, with Jesus and for Jesus. And so we pray the Psalms as sharers and participants with King Jesus in the ups and downs of the coming of his kingdom that we've been praying about this morning. We pray the Psalms through the lens of all that the Gospels tell us about Jesus and the kingdom of God. All right, well, given that background, we're ready to get into Psalm 13. But first, I want to tell you a story about a good friend of mine. She and her husband... um, several years ago, had their first child, and and the baby suffered a massive stroke. And she was told that her baby daughter might be a vegetable for her whole life. And my friend went home, and she cried, and she prayed. How do you pray in a situation like that? The need seemed so huge, and, and God at that moment seemed so small. Well, she struggled and she wrestled. She wanted her baby to be okay. Could could God heal her? Would God heal her? What did God want? She struggled with God. She struggled with her dream of raising a child who would learn to walk and talk and, and hug and laugh and grow up. Well, after a lot of anguish, my friend got to the point where she put her daughter in God's hands. It didn't come right away, but she got there eventually. She said, you're God, and I'm not. I do trust you. I do love you. You are good. You are powerful. And I'll take from your hand whatever you give me. And then she felt peace. But then she heard God saying in her heart, pray that I'll heal your daughter. And at first she felt pained and afraid by this. God, don't play with my heart like that. Don't set me up for disappointment. But the sense that that's what she would pray pray wouldn't go away. So she timidly but expectantly prayed it. And God healed her daughter completely. Now I tell you that story not because it's in any way a magic formula to get what we want from God. Or that that's always the outcome. But it illustrates this process of wrestling in prayer that we see in Scripture. When we start to pray, our, song, our concerns loom large. But part of prayer is wrestling through and getting perspective on how wonderfully huge God is and, and how powerful and how loving and how able to care for what concerns us God is until we get to the place where we embrace God's will for us And sometimes at that point, God answers us. And sometimes he doesn't. But either way, we're at the place that we need to be. So with these things in mind, let's look at Psalm 13. And let's work through the elements of this lament psalm. First, the address. How long, Lord? The address is barely there in this psalm. The psalmist is already rushing into his complaint. But at least he calls on the name of the Lord. And as you may know, when you see the Lord spelled in all caps, that's actually the personal name of God 
in Hebrew, probably pronounced Yahweh. And the name was most famously revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It means I am. It's the covenant name of God. And the name, it's the name specifically given to God's people as God pledged his unending faithfulness to his people. The idea that this name conveys is I am. I am there. I am there with you. I am there for you. So when you see Lord, all caps in the Psalms, remember what the psalmist is remembering. Remember that God has promised to be faithful to his people, that God has promised to be there with them and for them. That's the God the psalmist is praying to. And we always begin our prayer by taking time to remember who it is we're actually praying to. Next, we have the psalmist's complaint. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Can you feel the anguish in this psalm? This psalm has been nicknamed the howling, the howling. We don't know the psalmist's exact situation. According to verse 3, he fears that he'll die if God doesn't intervene. His enemies, political or military, are also breathing down his neck, threatening to destroy him. Maybe he's in physical danger from his enemies. Maybe he's ill and his political enemies are, are exploiting his weakness. Whatever his situation is, it, it seems that it's been going on for a long, long time, right? His refrain is, how long? How long? The worst part of all for the psalmist is that he feels abandoned by God. God has forgotten him. God has hidden his face from him. He feels alone and forsaken by God. Heaven is empty. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt, have you ever had your whole life turned upside down and, and God didn't fix it? In fact, over time, things went from bad to worse. You prayed and you prayed, but your troubles just continued until you felt swallowed up by them. I've experienced this several times. And the most intense was when I was living in Hungary for three years after college. And I was in culture shock. I was homesick. I was desperately lonely. I was hating my job and feeling like I was a total failure at it. I was slipping into a depression. And it was only October. And I'd committed to teaching the whole school year. The worst thing was that when I needed God most, he seemed totally absent. The words of scripture were just cold words on a page. They didn't mean anything to me. They didn't do anything for me. I couldn't pray. I couldn't sense God. I felt totally alone. And this just dragged on month after month. How do you pray in a situation like this? Well, the psalmists teach us. They get angry. They get indignant. They complain to God. They suggest that he's not doing a very good job. 
They, they just pour out their anguish and their sorrow. They, they criticize the way God's handling their situation. They question his faithfulness. It seems almost sacrilegious. Does it ever bother you that the psalmists pray this way? Eugene Peterson, who, who uh, just has wonderful things to teach us about the Psalms in his book and his paraphrase, the message does a wonderful job of paraphrasing the Psalms. He says, from our basic prayer book, the Psalms, which are the prayers of our ancestors that the Holy Spirit continues to use to teach us to trust and to follow and to praise God. From these Psalms, we also learn how common it is to experience the absence of God. Belief in God does not exempt us from feelings of abandonment by God. Praising God does not inoculate us from doubts about God. Questions and protests regarding God's absence are not marginal to salvation. The psalmists are neither shy nor apologetic in giving us license to pray our complaints about the way this whole salvation business is being conducted. I want to submit to you that this complaining that we read in the Psalms does not suggest a lack of faith on the psalmist's part. To the contrary, it actually proves the strength of their faith. The very reason they're complaining is because they expect more from God. They have a big view of God, a faithful view. When our God is small, when we have little faith, we pray for our concerns, but we don't complain when God doesn't answer them. I mean, we half expect that he's not going to answer them anyway. I know I've prayed your will be done, not because I've wrestled through to a genuine dependence on God, but just because I was God giving God an out in case he didn't answer. I didn't want to be embarrassed for him. Have you ever done that? Let's be honest. Yeah. Well, Madeline L'Engle, who wrote Wrinkle in Time, puts it this way. She says, those who believe they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. But the psalmists really do believe in God himself. They believe that he's the Lord, the great I am, who has promised to be with them and for them. And when they call on their God and he doesn't answer, they're indignant and they're angry and they complain, why God? How long, God? All right, let's move on from their complaint then to the psalmist's petition in verses 3 and 4. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, etc. Look how bold the psalmist's prayer is. Not, dear God, if it be your will, could you please help me a little with my problems? No, they pray, look on me and answer. The psalmist expects God to do something. How long, Lord? You can't let this continue. You have to act. Where does the psalmist's boldness come from? 
It comes from the fact that he's wrestled through what his concerns are and who God is. He's remembered what God is like and what God has promised. And the psalmist has evaluated his situation in light of God. In this case, the psalmist is the king of God's people. He's been faithful to God. It's King David. He's, he's trying to do God's will. And yet for all that, he's on death's door. And God's enemies are breathing down his neck. And God is nowhere in sight. So he prays, this can't continue. God can't let it. God wouldn't let it continue. God has to act. So the psalmist prays boldly and expectantly. Now, how does this apply to us? I mean, King David had this special thing going with God, right? We're not King David. Ah, but we're followers of the son of King David, Jesus. We follow the king who is bringing in God's kingdom today. And as we saw last week, for Jesus to succeed at this is God's will. Because when the kingdom is not coming, God's reputation is suffering. God's purposes are being thwarted. God's will is not being done. And we should be as indignant as the psalmists are. Theologian David Wells suggests that when we become resigned to the evil in the world, and we just think it's inevitable, he says we've surrendered the Christian view of God. But when we get angry about evil and injustice like the psalmists do, when we remind God of, 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 of what God's like and, and what God's promised and we insist that he act, God loves it when we pray that way. Take time to read Jesus teaching on prayer. Jesus just about begs us to twist God's arm and insist that God answers us. Well, the next element after the petition in Psalm 13 is the confession of trust. Verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. When you've wrestled through and you've gotten a clearer perspective on who God is, and you've asked God boldly to do what's in keeping with God's character and will to do, then you can trust and rest. Which leads to the last element of the psalm, the vow of praise. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. How in the world does the psalmist get from will you forget me forever to my heart rejoices in your salvation? And he's not talking about salvation for sins here. He's talking about salvation from his problems that he's praying about. I mean, the psalmist began his prayer in the pit. He, he was nearly despairing of life itself. God had abandoned him. And now he's rejoicing in God's rescue. He's, he's singing praise because God has been good to him. Well, you'll, you'll find this abrupt shift often in the lament psalms. Why? Well, the answer is the element that we just skipped over, the words of assurance. You remember the book of 1 Samuel when Hannah was pouring out her heart to God at the temple? And Eli the priest asked, uh, hears her grieving and praying and he says he says go in peace 
And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Coming from the priest, God's representative, this was more than just a kind wish. It was closer to an assurance that her prayer would be answered. And many interpreters of the Psalms postulate that this is what's taking place in some of these Psalms. Because while these Psalms may have been written in the palace or in the desert or or wherever, they were revised and they were used in worship at the temple. And when the priest came out of the temple to greet the worshipers, he, he offered them a blessing. And he may, like Eli did in that story with Hannah, at times have delivered them a word of assurance that the worshiper's prayer would be answered. Sometimes you find this assurance right in the psalm. Other times you won't find it there, but you'll notice a sudden change in the tone of the psalm. The complaining, lamenting psalmist suddenly and unexpectedly starts praising God for answering his prayer. And you wonder, what happened? Did I miss something? My friend that I told you about had that experience when she was praying for her daughter who who had the stroke, right? She had this word of assurance from God. Go ahead, pray for your daughter's healing. It's my will to heal your daughter. Now, I can't tell you how often we can expect that to happen as we pray. Not always. Maybe not even often. I don't know. But one thing I know, and that is that if we give up too soon, we'll never know. If we give up praying before we even start, before we've wrestled through what God is like and and what God wants and what we could expect from Him, then we miss out on the chance to draw close to God and, and to depend on Him and sometimes to praise Him for His great answers to our prayers. So here's the challenge to stay enrolled in the school of prayer. One way that you could do that would be to pray a psalm a day. Just pray through it. It won't always feel like your own. Sometimes it will. But let it teach you, wax on, wax off, to pray. Or keep using the Lord's Prayer. Or in some other way, stay enrolled in school.